thank you thank you brian for uh, for giving me opportunity to interview you for my youtube channel and podcast i'm happy to be here and how do i say your name sai sai great I mean, great to meet you in person sai <laughs> i enjoyed uh, some of the other interviews that you've done you've asked great questions it's a it's a valuable thing uh, that you accepted to uh, to be on my show and uh, uh, you know accepted to tell about the work that you are doing to my audience yeah i'm excited to learn a little bit more too about um what you hope to accomplish with your channel sure uh, before before talking more about it can you please introduce yourself to my audience Sure. Hi everyone. I'm Brian Sowards. I'm the founder of Supersynchronous. We're an engineering lab that helps companies uh, build out their operations internally. And uh, you you work as a CDO as well. I do. Yep. So I you know usually CEO is a term I I, I use lightly when you have a small team. Um, you know we're. We're a team of five right now, so yeah, you can call me the CEO, but uh, usually save that for uh, much when the companies get much larger. <laughs> so, what made you to uh, start this super synchronous, and uh, what is the what is your motivation? Yeah, um, you know, there's there's a few. I think of super synchronous as a set of experiments, and. Each one of those has uh, motivations behind it that uh, I care about very deeply. So a little bit about my background. Uh, I've been a, a startup and tech uh, entrepreneur for two decades, mostly in the software as a service SaaS space. So applications that are in the cloud. Uh, worked in a few SaaS companies and built a few of my own and had one small exit. And one of the things that I saw in my own experience and in the companies that I've worked in is that um, engineers were often, uh, for lack of a better way of it, putting it exploited. Um, they either worked in environments where uh, they were experiencing a ton of crunch, basically working you know, more than 100 hours a week and getting burnt out, and the startup would just cycle through burnt out engineers to the next burnt out engineer. Um, and it wasn't a very good life, or they're bored. Uh, they're put in companies because they have uh, competencies, but they don't really have interesting problems to solve or the things that they're given to do um, really don't map to their motivations. And um, I absolutely adore engineers. Um, you know, a lot of my good friends are engineers. And one of the things that I think is beautiful about engineers as people is that um, many of them are motivated to build things that help people. They genuinely want to help people by building helpful things. And uh, yet there's this weird thing that happens where we silo them away from people and we say, well, you're, you're a code person. And then we have people, people and the people, people spend time with people and, you know, engineers spend time with code. Um, as a startup founder, one of the most fun things I've ever done and continue to love doing is developing products. I think product management is a ton of fun. And when you're in a small startup, everybody's working together, everybody's talking to clients, everyone's getting to see for themselves what the impact is. And that has a profound impact on the quality of both what they create and also how they feel about their work. So there were 
two components from the engineering side that mattered to me. Number one, I have accepted that a lot of what uh, creates that uh, crunch or that lack of utilization of engineers is because of the business model, especially around growth at all costs, venture capital style building, where everyone's just chasing you know, the next quarterly update. And I wanted to design a business where engineers could work um, what I would call 80% work in progress. This is the old Google idea of, you know, 80% of your time is, is, is to the project so that you're assigned and 20% is your own projects. And I think there's something very special that happens when people have free bandwidth in their work week to process and metabolize what's going on, especially if they're problem solvers, especially if they love puzzles. So number one, I wanted to figure out how could I create a business model where engineers could have a healthy balance in terms of their work and build things for people and see the reactions that people were having. And so Supersynchronous does two things that are quite unique. Number one, our engineers actually work one-on-one -on -one with people in companies. They, they actually learn their workflows and build new ways of working for them with no code tools in real time. So they actually get to see how people use what they build and adapt it in real time, which is something you can't really do with a, you know, like a React tech stack, for example, but with tools like Coda or Bubble or Webflow, you can. And so it's a whole new experience that's very emotionally rewarding for the engineer. Uh, the other thing that I really cared about in doing that was I wanted it to be not just a technical innovation in how companies solved operations, but an emotional one. Um, and this was the big bet actually in founding Supersynchronous is could we find engineers who enjoyed working one-on-one -on -one with people. Um, I think that helps, you know, many engineers are introverted or ambivert or, you know, both verts. <laughs> so, you know, but there's there's that need to have some some quiet, some intimacy in, in their work. And so I think the remote work uh, world, the world of Zoom opens up this idea that people can have this very, you know, personal relationship with the people they work with while they're solving problems. Um, but what uh, many of our advisors uh, early on said is, well, yeah, but engineers are terrible with people. <laughs> you need you need people, people and and engineers. And that's fine. You know, if the engineer meets with the person, but you need to have a people person there or it's all going to go bad. Well, that's not true at all. Actually, our experience has been that not only has it been a great experience for the engineer, it's been a, mir a miraculous experience for the people that we work with on the other side. And I think that the foundational insight that we've had that's new that I didn't have when I first came in, I mean, I was, I was mainly just going on intuition, is there is a shared attribute between people who are very good at designing systems and working with technology and also are very good with people. And that's curiosity. So you started this uh, one and a half year before. So I was very fortunate in actually that Supersynchronous was a side project of uh, a VC, Shane Mack, who runs Logos Labs, uh, very successful exited entrepreneur who is now working on XMTP, which is a um, messaging protocol on the blockchain. Very cool stuff. And 
he and I met uh, early last year while I was sort of casting about for projects that I would find interesting. He was the first person within startups that really resonated with me around a core idea. And this is the other piece of the experiment that I alluded to a little bit, but in building uh, products, especially B2B products in the SaaS space, one of the things that I came to learn um, that I think of as a, a very um, sensible mistake that a lot of people make is that when they think about building a tool that will help people, they imagine it as a self-service tool. So let's say I want to help you uh, process your payroll faster. I'm going to build a tool that you can use to process your payroll faster. But uh, it turns out <laughs> that if you build a tool that's meant to be self-serve and it's a new tool, you spend, in my view, about 95% of your capital on other problems than people using your tool. Um, and a, a simple way to categorize this is customer success. I am a huge fan of customer success. I was a pioneer in the customer success movement. I think Nick Meta is one of my heroes. Um, Gainsight is an incredible company, a category cr creator like none other in my view. Um, and having been, you know, a sales leader, having worked very tightly between sales and customer success and done customer success with work of my own, um, anyone who works in customer success, if they've, especially if they've worked across multiple companies, can probably resonate with the idea that you're approaching the end of the annual agreement, the customer hasn't logged in to that dashboard in like 90 days, and so basically what you need to do is get them back into the tool so that they can get the value out of the tool that they bought it for in the first place so that they'll actually renew. Well, all of that looks like administration. So I started thinking about the problem in a new way, which was instead of building a self-serve tool, what if we built tools for the administrative aspects of delivering the value of a SaaS product? And the self-serve tool, we don't actually really build until we've reliably solved all those other problems. And that turned out to give me wings in solving problems with technology with, with customers. Um, you know, a, a CRM company that I worked with, for example, when they looked at their time to close and time to value. So like how long did it take them to win the customer? And then how long did it actually take to get the customer to the point that they were getting the value out of the tool that was intended? It was about a nine month journey. What was taking all that time? Literally, they had the tool. You could press a button and the tool would work. They could deploy in minutes. So why was it taking so long for the time to value? And the reason was is because, number one, they had to get all the data from the client from their old CRM system. Number two, they'd almost always discover that that data was malformed and had all kinds of issues and so had to be massaged and cleaned up, that data was missing, uh, that there were artifacts in the way that the old CRM had been configured for them to work around how the tool worked while still modeling their data, and they had to translate all of that hidden business knowledge into the new data model that they could actually use in the new tool. In other words, there were all of these administrative tasks that were massive lifts, and this is sort of a dirty little secret of any sort of CRM or data type tool in B2B SaaS. So much of your time and your cost is actually helping customers figure out what their data is, 
get that data into a system that you can actually ensure is reasonably accurate and surfacing all of the hidden components of how the data works that are really artifacts of how the business works and isn't properly mapped to the tool. And so when Shane and I met, we talked about this idea of like companies should be building their internal ops with this miracle that is no code tools. From my perspective, no the technology's ability to solve a business problem, especially B2B communication style problem, has leaped a thousand percent in the last 10 years. But do we see a thousand percent increase in people's productivity? Do we see people who are no longer wasting their lives copying and pasting data from an Excel spreadsheet into a SaaS tool, into a document, and so on? No, that's like the bulk of what people spend their time doing in companies. And so I think it's blue ocean. I think we could literally see a 10x in companies' productivity in a very short time frame by deploying no-code tools to design their operations. And again, another insight I didn't have going in, but now I can say is, the question is, what is the ultimate software feature? The ultimate software feature is designing the software to the way that you work. And this gets us into a really interesting reinvigoration of what the Agile Manifesto was always about, which gives me chills. The, when you look at Dewey and uh, even Taylorism, when, when you look at the history of organizational management theory, one principle stands alone above all others. And this is really the heart of the Agile Manifesto, which is those who do the work design the work. When you pair a person with a no-coder, with a tool that's designed for the average computer user to grok, understand, and even modify, that vision is practical reality. We actually sit down with our clients and their team members and they say, you know, could it do something like this? And we like, sure. And it happens right in front of them. And of course, as soon as the change happens, that unlocks a whole new set of questions and a whole new set of possibilities that weren't even on the table before that mechanic was available to them. So I'm very excited because for me, software had become very, you know, the business of software had become very boring. It had become very stale. It had become like, you know, <laughs> like crusty old naan. Nobody wants to eat anymore. <laughs> just like this, this isn't fresh. I don't want this. You know, it's just, it, it felt very formulaic. And now, you know, solving people's problems with code is exciting again. And that's one of the things that makes supersynchronous very unusual. Yes, we believe no code allows people who aren't coders to use tools. But man, when you have an engineer who is a computational thinker helping the user understand how to translate their problem into a software tool, the velocity you get is like nothing I've ever seen. Uh, can I say this uh, revolutionary thought of yours uh, to uh, reduce the time of your clients or the customers uh, came uh, uh, from the two decades of your customer, uh, you know, understanding the customer uh, satisfaction and uh, customer requirements uh, in different companies that you worked? Uh, so a little bit about my background in solving customer problems before this. Yeah. Um, so I started my first software company when I was 16. And um, the first problem that I got to solve was 
um, the font that's used in the American school system and broadly, actually, it came from the UK. Um, it has a, a, a specific design feature, which is that the letters mirror each other. So D and B are direct inversions of each other. And that font actually um, caused children who had a propensity for dyslexia to develop it. In fact, 90% of children who might develop dyslexia do in the school system, unfortunately, even to this day, because of that font. And I happened to, to meet uh, a woman who was an educator, Nan Barchowski, um, who invented a font and she used it in her own classroom. Her classroom was her lab. So when she was teaching handwriting and reading exciting assignments to students, she created a new font and not a single one of her students developed dyslexia for over a decade. So she took that font and she came to me and said, I want to create software where students can come up with their own assignments, their own handwriting. So let's say they're doing the letter D. They could pick a dragon or a doll or a dump truck. They could pick an image that resonated with them. And, and agency is a very important topic to me in education. So I was electrified by this idea. So we ended up creating uh, the first digital curriculum on Macromedia Director on a multimedia CD-ROM, this is before the internet, that deployed this font to schools. Um, and as she learned, and I subsequently learned in a few of my ed tech startups, you can solve students' problems, but that doesn't mean the school will buy it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that there are two different customers going on there and the school and the students need and want different things. But it really, uh, it gave me such an appreciation for how powerful technology could be in driving adoption of an idea like that that could be so transformative. Um, from there, I did a wide range of essentially small business consulting. So I was uh, at the forefront of the CRM uh, movement. I, I helped a number of companies design and build CRMs. I built a few proprietary ones myself um, for my dad's company and it ran on his business for over a decade. Still one of my most successful products <laughs> that I've ever deployed in terms of that length of adoption. Um, I've worked at uh, you know Microsoft as a agile coach, um, LinkedIn as a um, solutions consultant in terms of mapping data to recruiting and talent needs, uh, worked at um, quite a number of digital agencies, some of which were my own and some of which were you know, partners or friends of mine, um, and solved a lot of different kinds of problems, marketing problems, um, you know, launching mobile apps uh, to sort of you know, win over a specific uh, user cohort, work with the U.S. Golf Association, for example, to build a, a mobile app right when iOS launched uh, that would get younger golfers to engage more and, and go out to courts. So I've been fortunate in that I've gotten to look at and play with a lot of different kinds of problems, not only at the B2B and somewhat consumer level, but also things like uh, my own startup, Thunderbolt, which was about empowering students to crowdfund for projects that they wanted to create. And we help students launch satellites into space, build out anti-bullying campaigns, documentaries, uh, take their teams to the sci science fair, all kinds of just amazing things uh, and creativity. Um, and that was truly my greatest innovation up until now, because in order to launch crowdfunding at a university, we had to, to deal with three sources of uh, data, payment data, alumni data, and student data. 
which are all the three most sensitive forms of data that a university has. And so it was really interesting to be at the forefront of a new movement and a new tool um, and try to figure out how to solve a multi-sided marketplace problem, something that benefited schools, something that benefited alumni, and something that benefited students. And um, I learned a lot of tough lessons. You know, it was a, a social startup. Uh, we were the first uh, B Corp benefit corporation out of the state of Delaware. Um, so, you know, I, I really wanted to figure out how to turn capitalism into an engine for good. And that was my my sandbox for about five years doing that. That was later acquired by Campus Logic, who was just acquired by Lucian. So, you know, the the team and 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 what we learned lives on. Um, but mainly what I learned through that process is what I shared earlier, that when it really comes to helping people adopt innovation, do new things, do things that can create benefits that aren't possible in the systems that they're in, so much of that heavy lifting is really in changing the way operations works. So after founding the Super Synchronous, uh, you saved uh, $100,000 uh, of your clients. Uh, is, on, is that not a big achievement for you, you know, coming from a employee and uh, creating a company and uh, uh, that is very big wealth for, uh, you know, you, you, you gave them, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, that uh, hope that uh, we can reduce the, the unnecessary cost that is there and, uh, you know, by connecting with Super Synchronous. Yes. Um, so that's our, that was our first project on Coda, um, founded by Shashir. Coda is a absolutely amazing um, piece of new technology. Imagine if Google Docs and Bubble had a baby and you get Coda. It's basically docs that behave like apps. And especially one of the things I love about Coda is your documentation is the tool. So at Squared Away, Squared Away had done a really interesting innovation in the virtual assistant marketplace. They had a client model which allowed clients to change, basically scale up or scale down down the number of hours that they used a virtual assistant whenever they wanted to. But they provided stable pay to all of their VAs. And of course, the primary problem to solve there is if a client powers down their hours, you need to move a VA to another client. If they power them up, you need to bring some VAs in. And they're now, I think they've scaled to nearly $10 million in revenue in just a few years. So it's a very powerful business model because they've been able to tap into uh, this, you know, military spouses who typically because their spouses are moving around because the military is moving them around, can't hold down a stable job. But many of them are college educated and quite competent. And so it's amazing. They can just move around the country and keep the same clients and keep the same employer. So it's a really cool thing. But it's a payroll nightmare. Every single one of those changes needed to be tracked, verified and calculated. And if they weren't properly calculated, the assistant might be feel that they were unfairly treated or uh, there might end up being a client facing issue. And neither of those were good in a double sided marketplace like that. You know, it's really a managed talent marketplace like Upwork or Uber, for example. So you got to You got to really take care of both groups. And it was taking them a hundred hours a month to reconcile their payroll. So the beauty of putting that on Coda was not only did we put, put one source of truth where all the information was, but as the companies changed their policies, we could change the way the model worked in real time. And the net effect of that 
was that they saved more than six figures. Uh, and, and just the cost of managing that project. Um, and we're, we're really excited. We're going to be sharing the head of finances uh, personal testimony about what it was like to overcome all that pretty soon. So yeah, very high impact. I think what's cool, of course, is we save them a lot of time and we save them a lot of money, right? That's the, that's the headline. But for us, what we think is even more significant is what the head of finance has been able to do since then because they're not putting so much of their time into essentially copying and pasting a bunch of data. So super synchronous. So how, what kind of projects that you want to do through this thought? Yeah, so we're finding a real niche wherever companies have highly paid employees whose primary challenges are coordination and communication. So a lot of our clients are, for example, our digital agencies. In a digital agency, most of the things that slow you down from delivering value and collecting revenue is all of the many changes that happen to your projects as you're navigating them through to delivery and coordinating across all the different departments to make that happen. And of course, then, especially um, uh, nowadays, uh, people are cycling in and out of agencies much faster, right? If you look on LinkedIn, the average tenure is less than two years for most people who work, um, because that's frankly how you get better pay and better titles as you go to another company. That's really how careers work today. And so when you combine, you know, a lot of coordination and communication with a lot of um, really uncontrollable complexity as it's moving through the system, plus people changing in and out, it gets chaotic very quickly. And so uh, we go in and we help build systems so that, back to this idea that the documentation is the tool, even if you were just onboarded that month, not only do you understand what the process is, but you can run the process right in the documentation. And so we're building out systems for all kinds of things, social media marketing, production management, um, forecasting relating, for example, finances perspective to both existing and recurring revenue to new business and helping the companies adjust projections in terms of you know how much budget they should allocate to different departments, how many hires should they seek to make. Um, we've helped to coordinate things like all hands meetings and help make one-on-one -on -one meetings between managers and their, their, their direct reports more, uh, more meaningful and more actionable. Um, if you go to coda.io slash gallery and look up, for example, the Dory exercise, which is one of our favorites, um, this is a really good example of not just solving a technical ops problem, but a culture ops problem. One of the things that we're all learning is how we treat people has a huge impact on business outcomes, but it's not quite clear what that impact is or what the relationship is. And one of those practices is the idea that if you, you know, imagine for a, for a second, you've got a conference room, everybody on the team is gathered around, and then the leader walks in and says, okay, here's what we're doing. Does anyone have any questions? What happens? Nobody asks any questions, right? So how do you get your team to feel comfortable asking the questions they really have? Well, this is something that LinkedIn does and many other tech companies do now which is 
they create a place where people can put their questions in and then people can upvote the questions that they most want answered. So the questions the group really has, whether they feel comfortable raising their hand and talking in public or not, float to the top. And that's called the Dory exercise. I highly recommend it. It's a really powerful way of doing three things. Number one is a leader understanding what the questions are that your team really has and how many people in your organization are talking about it. Number two, it's in critically important for diversity and share of voice, ensuring that people from many different perspectives have the ability to bring their perspective to the table. Questions, of course, being a great way to do that. And number three, it provides a history over time where you can see how the questions your team is asking are changing, which can give you a trajectory in terms of improving on key things. For example, if the top question is, when are we all gonna get a break? <laughs> then you know that that's something you need to talk about with your, you know, your HR team and your production team and your leaders to coordinate, hey, team is feeling burnt out. How can we create some pockets of, of rest and recovery? Do we do a team offsite, whatever it might be? And then if the top question changes to, hey, you know, like when are we going to get a new client? Then you know that the team is hungry for more work. So it actually becomes a way of getting both operational insight and culture insight. And in my view, Culture ops is really one conversation. You're just looking at it from two different perspectives. So uh, you understood the technology side as an engineer, you know how, how the machine works and how the uh, uh, application works, how, uh, how to create uh, uh, how to create things which are uh, which matches with the client's requirements and also, uh, you are very good in, uh, I can see you are very good at understanding uh, the, the industry uh, and uh, 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 how to create uh, 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 products that are, uh, that are going to help, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the service, the people who are taking the service from you that will satisfy them and uh, that will help them in uh, making things easier. So, can I say in these two decades you understood uh, the, the the complete uh, 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 the complete business aspect and the technology thing? So actually, that's probably a, you know a good item for us to to wrap up on. Um, no, no, we don't. No one does. The real truth is that no one knows what anyone does in their job anywhere at any time. Um, you know, talking to your audience, is there any person on earth who really knows what you do every day, all day long? Really? Right? The answer is no, right? No one really knows what you go through every day. They don't know what you deal with, not even the people you love the most and talk to the most, not even your team members. And one of the reasons for that is you don't actually know everything that you go through every day to do your job. And that might sound strange to say, but what we first learned when our engineers would sit down with people and say, so take me through your workflow. What do you do? People say, oh, well, I do this and then I do this and I do that. So then they go start do the first item. And they go, oh, well, actually, sometimes I need to do this and then sometimes I need to do this. And by the time they would get to the end of the first meeting, they go, wow, I had no idea I was doing all of those things. So there's this real element of where we're all so busy and just trying to get things done all the time that we're not reflecting on our work and we're not really appreciating or making space for what's actually going on. 
And the most common thing that I hear from CEOs in terms of what they wish they had, especially if their organizations are scaling very quickly, is visibility. Um, you know, the best CEOs, the best leaders want to empower their people, right? They want to uh, enable them to own the problem and figure out how to solve it for themselves. But that creates a dynamic on two sides. Number one, what that person is doing is always kind of changing and adapting a little bit. And number two, the CEO doesn't really know how the business is running. So what's kind of cool about Supersynchronous is not only are we airdropping into different areas of the business and solving problems, but we're also creating visibility. You know, companies are really highly ambiguous and so we're comfortable in ambiguity. That's one of the benefits of curiosity is you can be dropped into an ambiguous situation. Um, and this all maps right back to product management. In a, in a very real sense, Supersynchronous is just product management deployed as a service. So how do, you, how do you approach ambiguity? How do you figure out what's really going on? How do you figure out how to really help people? Well, there's a couple basic principles. Number one, you sit down with them in real time because human memory is context dependent. If I ask you what you do every day, you'll tell me one thing, but if you're sitting there doing it, it will be something completely different, right? So first you gotta get that intimacy. We call it embedded. The engineer needs to be embedded with the team and actually work together with them to see what their workflow actually is. The second challenge there is that once you do have a deeper understanding of it, very often, there are cross-functional dependencies. And because we organize teams and our companies into teams, we're all really clear what the customer success team and the sales team and the product team and the engineering team and, and the other team needs to do. But the way that they interact with each other, who owns that? So my two favorite questions to ask a leader are, number one, who is accountable to ensuring that you're always improving your operations at your company? I have yet to meet a CEO who has an answer to that question. And number two, who is responsible for ensuring that teams are able to innovate on cross-functional operations so that they can seamlessly work together? And again, I've yet to receive um, you know, an answer to that. Obviously, there's your chief operating officer. Many companies have ops people embedded, but the sense of that there is a strategic value to the business to constantly innovating and constantly improving their, their operations. Most CEOs are more about managing the operations you have than about driving forward innovation in your operations. And so um, that's the beauty of you know, real-time product management is instead of you sitting down and taking an order building that order and coming back and finding out that not the customer didn't really understand their problem and maybe you didn't quite understand what they were saying either because you're working in an iterative fashion and you're uncovering what's really going on and how it works and then deploying tools that they then use and go oh now that i'm using this tool i actually also need it to do this or when i'm finished using this tool it actually needs to send a file to that team over there and now you get to begin working with two teams and working through iteratively together so you know ambiguity is good i think we the the idea that removing ambiguity from the company is how you get efficiency is just a lie plain and simple when you're dealing with creative problem solving ambiguity is how you discover what you don't know and so having 
you know, one of the benefits of having a super synchronous engineer is they're very comfortable in ambiguity. So they can help your whole team feel more comfortable talking about things they haven't figured out yet, which is usually something people tend to hide. So with this idea of uh, idea called super synchronous, so what change that you want to uh, bring in the industry? I think I would feel that we were most successful in our mission if a new gestalt arose in companies where instead of thinking about people working in systems and the business is the system and the people are, you know, the hamsters on the wheel, right? That's sort of how a lot of people think about companies today. It doesn't work. It's not productive. It creates all kinds of challenges and it ossifies the way the company works. Companies stop innovating when they believe that they are a system with people in it. What I think would make us, you know, would be the indicator that we've been the most successful in our mission is that people be, is that companies begin to think of themselves as a community of people. And the more that you nurture and care for and support those people, the more productive and powerful and innovative you're going to be. And I believe that we provide them with a path to see that effect for themselves. Uh, can you create anything that uh, a human needs with the uh, tool that you have called technology? That's a it's an interesting question. So what is technology is a fun question to ask, right? Because in one way, everything that human beings do is technology and also everything is an organism. Um, there's this great book called What Technology Wants, and it basically applies biologic, you know, the theories in biology to technology. And it turns out that technology behaves an awful lot like organisms at, at a macro scale. So in my view, human beings are uh, puzzle solvers, we're pattern detectors, and we're mimics, right? I, I'm not so sure that human, human beings are an intelligent species, but we're definitely a social species. If we see someone else do something that's cool, that works for them, we, we can try it on. And it's interesting how fast the information can transfer when you hang out with someone who's doing something in a new way, you can kind of, you know, what uh, the Buddhists or the hippies call grok. You can kind of just sort of get it, even though you don't understand it, right? So it's less about passing instructions along, and it's more about hanging out with people who behave in different ways. What I think is phenomenal is that that ability to mimic behavior, which is the fastest rate of information transfer between human beings that I found, is now the dominant form of technology. Here's a really simple example, at least in the United States. Google used to be the number one uh, website, and now it's TikTok. Now, some people might say, oh, that's the worst thing ever. Like, we went from searching for knowledge and information to now we're just watching dance videos, right? Like, they, they might say, like, that is a, uh, you know, it's, it's showing that we're, we're dumbing down our society. But what I've seen my own children use on TikTok is watching videos for how do you deal with anxiety? How do you negotiate for a, a good job? How do you handle when someone treats you poorly? In other words, we're learning from other people new ways of behaving. And so in my view, 
we are the source of power. Human beings are the power, right? You have power, I have power. And sometimes we get caught up in this illusion that other people have the power and they tell us what to do and we just have to do it. And that's one way you can use your power. But another way you can use it is say, is this working for me? And if it's not working for me, what new choices do I want to make? I think once we really begin to grok that as especially an entrepreneurial and innovation community, that it's about people making new choices and that technology can enable that. And we design technology to enable that. That's when I think we will solve almost all the problems that are in front of us as a species. Can I say, uh, uh, as an owner of uh, Super Synchronous, you understand social psychology and human psychology and computer psychology? I, so I am a I am a learning by doing kind of guy. <laughs> so I, I will say this: I think the people that I work with have often said that they feel safer and more calm in working with me, and that came from me choosing to spend a good deal of my life. Um, addressing my own psychological wounds and mental health. Um, I come from a long line of people who made a lot of money and lost a lot of money. So I grew up quite poor, actually. And what I took, at least by the United States standards, um, and by what I took away from that is mental health is wealth. So my primary concern in life is, what does it look like to be healthy personally and in the way that we relate to each other. That's what I'm most curious about. And I, I genuinely believe that most of our systems have been designed around unhealthy human behavior that works. Um, just because something works doesn't mean it's the only option, right? Exploiting people works. Getting people to work themselves to death works. You can make a lot of money that way all around the world but it's not the only choice. We can make other choices. And so for me, understanding what uh, health looks like in a person and in a community is the first question, and then how to generate abundance and wealth together in that way is the second. Um, I learned that through being a social startup founder. When I first started, I thought capitalism is an engine. I'm going to use the engine of capitalism and I'm going to solve human problems with it. I was all in on that. And here's what I learned. The engine is the mission. If you build a company whose engine is one thing, it will never arrive at its mission, but it will be successful at its engine. And I think you can see that with, for example, Meta, you know, formerly Facebook. Um, I think there was some genuine social mission at some at one point uh, in, in Facebook's history. And many of the best product people in the world grew up and worked in, in Facebook. They deeply cared about building rewarding and useful products for people. Um, but when all of your money comes from advertisers, advertisers are going to dictate your behavior. And the ramifications of that globally have been stunning. Um, we're even seeing it with Google now, right? Google has progressed from being almost an extension of the university idea of the internet of all information is discoverable to you know the, the above the fold is now all ads, right? 
And so um, I think the the fundamental flaw in Web 2, um, if you want to call it that, is that the engine is advertising. Um, in B2B SaaS, the engine is the budget of the people at the top. It's why truly terrifyingly bad products are bought every day by the biggest companies in the world and deployed. Um, even though it's terrible for their users, even though it's terrible for their productivity, it makes sense to them at their level. And so they buy it and deploy it and force everybody to use it. And I think that top-down motion is because the engine of SaaS is securing budgets from executives. And executives don't have the same experience with technology that the people doing the work do. So for me, it's all about how do we design an engine that is the mission? So creating a company is not a easy thing. Uh, it's like uh, it's, a, it's a new uh, thing that you're creating and you don't know what happens next. You That's don't right. know how uh, you're going to solve problems until uh, you face challenges or you get it. So the engineer in you, understanding engineering uh, aspect uh, is completely different from understanding people's problems and uh, solving it. So what that gut feeling of yours uh, made you to put this and uh, do this? You got this thought, uh, you know, one day night and you decided to just change the world with super synchronous. Pretty much. I mean, here's the thing to me, like if you look at the history of entrepreneurship, there's a lie, which is people found companies to make money. That's just not true. It's way easier to make money running companies that already make a lot of money. Right. And working your way up into them. Um, people who found companies. Almost to a, to a person believe something. They believe something. They can see something that other people can't see. When you look at Toyota, when you look at the founder of Kodak, when you look at Steve Jobs with Apple, even Zuck with Facebook, when you look at, you know, uh, Sergey and, and, and Google, they all believed something or they were interested or curious about something. And it was so compelling to them, they had to go figure it out. So the engine of innovation has always come from here. It's always come from our creative, imaginative mind. And uh, in terms of business model innovation, in terms of changing the way things work. And so, you know, in the past, I think I was motivated by like, how do I change the world? And now super synchronous for me is how do I be the change that I want to see in the world and how do I help others do the same? So what is your inspiration? Where do you uh, get this kind of uh, uh, problem solving uh, mindset? Yeah, I, you know, uh, Steve Blank has actually done a lot of uh, writing about this. He was the professor of entrepreneurship and I think now the director of entrepreneurship at Stanford University. Um, and he said that in his experience, most entrepreneurs come from troubled families. <laughs> so, you know, my growing up was very chaotic and um, I am the oldest of 12 children. Uh, we moved all the time. And I think if you're the kind of person who grows up young and you have aptitude and drive and the way that the adults are doing things doesn't make sense to you you sort of begin asking questions at a very young age of like how do we do this in a way that works and one of the things that 
anyone who asks that question discovers very quickly is that most of the world doesn't work very well at all. As Steve Jobs said, all the people who built everything that you see and run everything that you see running are no smarter than you. They just decided it would work that way and it does and you can do the same thing. So what I would say is I think that the spark of entrepreneurship is a part of human potential. If you're curious, if you want to help people, if you're willing to go figure a problem out and build it and and figure out how to make this thing grow and survive, um, you have entrepreneurial DNA. Um, the way I look at it is some people can be entrepreneurs and some people can't be anything else. And I'm one of those people who can't be anything else. <laughs> Uh, what is the connectivity between uh, human and software? That's such a good question. So here's something that we don't typically acknowledge. A job is software. In fact, anything that defines how something works is software. All laws are software. All governance policies are software. Um, software, in my view, is a encoded pattern in language that you can run, right? And you might run that on a democracy, you might run it on a company, you might run it on a person, you might run it on a computer, you might run it on the blockchain, you might run it on AI, but it's it's got this, this characteristic of, you know, deploying patterns. What's fantastic is that in the explosion of computational power, we have been able to run certain programs much faster and at a much higher scale than we ever could before, but we're very limited in its application. Even when you look at machine learning, for example, it's very limited in how you can use it to solve problems. And so we have to keep kind of extending how it can solve problems, right? So in my view, I have learned that I have instructions. I downloaded certain instructions from my parents. I saw how they behaved or how they told me I should behave, and I downloaded those. Um, I have participated in systems will say the way it works here is, and maybe the way they say it works and the way it actually works are two different things, but you have to learn to run both systems simultaneously, right? Sort of like your landing page for your startup and what your startup actually does, what your product actually does, right? Messaging and and uh, an actual execution. So um, I think one of the things we forget is that a computer is an expression of how we believe the human mind works, right? Even ML is based on neural nets. Where do neural nets come from? Our theory of mind about how neurons work with each other. And of course, we're learning all kinds of things about how neurons behave that go far beyond those initial theses. So I think that in my view, one of the things we tend to do is we tend to think I'm a person and then there's technology, but really it's all us. We have projected out into the world things about ourselves that we kind of figured out and kind of didn't. And so they kind of work and they kind of don't. And we can keep uh, we can keep running that wheel. We can keep learning. So um, in the end, the more I've learned to listen to my body, think of this as sort of like, I have an information source here that's constantly giving me signals about what's going on with me. The more I pay attention to that, and the more I think, how might I try on different software, some different ideas, different structures 
and play those out and experiment with it the same way I would do with any tool that I think is really cool, the faster I've gotten to a place where like life feels really fun and comfortable and I'm getting to do really cool things. So I think, um, you know, the, the, the magic of, of human consciousness is we are the monkey that gets to look at its own brain. You know, we get to look in the mirror and we get to see how we're behaving. And so we can actually create a feedback loop with ourselves and with each other and with the things that we build. And so that's, that's my broad invitation to everyone is that however you think about technology, include yourself in it. Is this how I would want to be treated? Is this is how I want someone that I'd love to be treated? Because if you keep yourself included in it, then you, you help keep the recognition that there is no software we can deploy that doesn't affect a human person. And likewise, human people who are out there, the software that they have in their mind is influencing everyone around them too. So there's, you know, we're, we're all part of um, this sort of ecosystem of consciousness, I guess, where we're, we're learning from each other and trying things. How much time you spend uh, in a day for super synchronous? Uh, because I can see uh, uh, you use your mind effectively and efficiently. Uh, you know, you, you are talking about the internal things of the human body and you are talking about the internal things of the uh, IT software. Uh, so how this understanding, how, how much uh, effort you put uh, and uh, what makes you to wake up in the morning every day and uh, do create this money, power, uh, what you want to do? Love. As Michael Jackson would say, it's all for love. I like to feel good and I like for the people around me to feel good. And that's what motivates me. So what is time to you? Um, so time and space have a relationship with energy, right? We've all had that feeling of like, you know, anyone who's worked in a startup has had that experience of like, I feel like I've been doing this for three years and also it all passed in three minutes. Like time enters this sort of super fluid state where like so much is happening that it feels like you've lived three lives in one life, right? And it all goes by so quickly. So the way that I think about time is how can I take responsibility for my relationship with time? How can I think about creating time? Um, and there's, there's many great books along these topics, but The Power of Full Engagement is one which talks about managing energy instead of time that transformed my life. Um, if you frame everything in time, then the only form of energy really available to you is urgency. And urgency is incredibly inefficient, right? If you're running on adrenaline all the time, you will create disease in your body because adrenaline is incredibly inefficient. It's a burst of energy, it's a burst of power, but at the cost of efficiency. So if you really want to build a sustainable and healthy organism, uh, Hustle culture isn't actually the, the model. And adrenaline isn't bad, right? I, I get adrenalized and I go do cool things and I hustle sometimes all the time. And then I relax and I refresh and I uh, renew myself because I don't believe that time is the enemy. What I think about is how do I manage my energy? 
And the more that I get in alignment with what's feeling good and where's my energy going and, and what feels like it wants to happen, you know, the more I get sort of attracted to the things that feel like they're possible, um, I have these sort of magic leaps, like um, just the right things show up at the right time and I get to dive in because, you know, luck is opportunity meeting preparedness. Well, one of one version of preparedness is I feel good and I have energy available to me. So managing your energy is a big part of being able to capitalize on opportunity. So that's one. And then the other is the big leap. The big leap by Gay Hendricks completely changed my life. Um, a year before I took over with Supersynchronous, I had no job. I had just been let go due to COVID. Um, I had limited funds and I had no idea what I was gonna do next. And I really just doubled down with this book, The Big Leap on what's my genius? What is the thing that I uniquely do that's really powerful for other people, but is really easy for me? This is one of the tricks of things that we're uniquely good at is it feels so effortless for us. If you're, if you're measuring value based on how much effort it costs you, you actually will optimize for the wrong thing. You'll optimize for something that's high effort and high value, which Gay refers to as the zone of excellence. There's many things that we're good at that other people can rely on us for, but at the end of the day, leave us drained, right? And then there's things that we can do that give people a ton of value, give us energy, and are actually really fun and are really easy. Like this whole conversation we're having right now, this is a blast for me, I'm having a good time. So I feel energized by this, right? Because I'm talking about something I love and I'm talking with you, someone who's curious and wants to share with the world knowledge. I mean, the things that just make me feel good. And I get excited about like, yeah, let's all learn together. Like that's just the best. I love that we have this global learning community that we're creating because of people like you who choose to put themselves out there and make this happen. It's incredibly special to me. So when I think about time, what I think about is how can I create time for what I most want to be doing? And the more that I take that view, the more time I have somehow. So you have this understanding uh, since uh, uh, you were in college, uh, you know, you want to start a company someday and you want to uh, uh, solve problems and the save, save the time of uh, the people who are uh, there in the world uh, through the medium that you know the the the, the subject that you took technology you want to save that time you have this uh, understanding uh, uh, before you entered into a job or uh, that's right because I can see I can see you know a lot of things not only technology you 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 know uh, everything I think I, 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 are you able to answer any question that comes from any human on this planet <laughs> that's very kind um i am one of these people who dives into any topic that like i get really excited about and i've just aggregated a lot of things over time so generally i find that i can have a conversation with just about anyone but of course as i'm sure you know the most interesting things in life are what you have to say they're the questions you have to ask and the things you learn that you didn't know So what do you want to do uh, with su Super Synchronous? What well, it is going to do and well, uh, the, yeah. your, the team of yours, uh, how are you going to take the engineers of yours? Do they need to understand uh, uh, everything like you 
in order to solve the problem because uh, you need a effective team in order to uh, uh, make things possible because the intensity that you have is very strong i can see you know the the, the people who are going to work with you uh, should be like you in order to make the 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 complete industry change i am already doing what i most want to do it was a beautiful moment in my life when I realized if someone offered me $10 billion for super synchronous, I wouldn't take it because I'm already doing what I love and what I want to spend the rest of my life doing, which is helping really amazing creative people feel safe and do their best work. So it was a great day for me when I realized that I never want to sell. I, I don't have anything to sell. I already have what I want. And, um, you know, as a young man from desperate circumstances, I wanted financial security and many of my startups that I built were because I wanted to make money. And certainly there's nothing wrong with that. Um, in fact, I think it's a good thing uh, for young entrepreneurs to start by figuring out the game of building a business that then makes money that they can then sell. Because once you know what that game is, you learn two things about your, you know, you, you learn something about yourself. You either learn that that's what's the most fun for you or something else is. And what I learned is something else is fun for me. It's the game itself. That's really what I enjoy. So what is your uh, uh, opinion about uh, as an entrepreneur, as a, as a founder uh, and uh, as a leader, what is your uh, understanding about Elon Musk? Oh, <laughs> Daddy Musk. Um, well, so first, I think it's a little bit strange to have opinions about Musk. He is a once in a generation um, person, human being. Um, he's quite specific in his background and his drives and his accomplishments. And so the arc of history doesn't really give us that much opportunity to put Elon into a context that we can understand. But there are several things about Elon that I deeply appreciate. Um, and I have, as I've articulated in this call, great differences with him in terms of how I work things. So, you know, talk about a place that burns out engineers as a business model. That's every company that Elon runs, right? If you work there, you're going to be working your ass off until you're so tired you can't do it anymore and then eventually quit <laughs> or be fired. So, you know, it's a churn and burn environment to be sure. Um, however, he's pointed it at things that were radically significant. And I get it, you know, many people look at the wealthy and people who are rich, especially if the media is talking about how rich they are and think that they have all this money and all this resources, why don't they solve the world's problems? And what I would invite those individuals to do is pick a problem that they really care about and study the people who are solving it and how they're solving it and what the challenges are in solving it. Because one of the things you'll learn very quickly if you deeply care about something and really start trying to figure out how to build a solution for it is just how difficult it really is and where that difficulty actually lies. And Alan has been unbelievably successful at taking on things that no one has beat before and succeeded. 
I think of Alan as sort of like the crazy samurai warrior who's protecting the group of engineers who are actually solving the problem. Look, when Alan took over SpaceX, every rocket that was launched under him blew up. He knew that going into it. <laughs> he knew that his chances of launching a successful rocket were basically zero, but he demonstrated that his sheer level of will and commitment, i.e. every penny he owned was invested in that company. He was gonna keep blowing up rockets until somebody else came along and built one that worked. And that's what happened when his team of engineers came on, whose names really I want to know. So thank you. I will go learn them again so I can, in my future interviews, talk about them. Those are the heroes, right? Those are the people who solved the problem. But Alon created the context where people who really wanted to solve the problem could. And in this dystopian late stage capitalism globalist society we've got going on where Somehow making money is how we solve humanity's problems, even though that is blindingly obviously not true, that humanity has huge problems that the pursuit of profit will never solve. Alan found a way to navigate that and not only delivered um, a whole new context in terms of um, people believing that solar power and electric vehicles and multi, you know, multi-launch rockets were possible. He delivered them, right? His team and he delivered them. So I think Musk is probably one of the most successful deconstructors of the implied expectation of the elite that I have ever seen. His ability to interact with memes and antagonize the establishment is, again, something I have, he's done it better than Steve Jobs did, to be real. He's broken systems of control over people who run companies and deploy capital at a level I've never seen before. I mean, he has literally bankrupted every short seller that's ever gone after him. That in and of itself is just a spectacular accomplishment. So, you know, he's, he's an inspiration to me. I don't have any problem saying that at all. Just because someone inspires me doesn't mean I have to aspire to be everything that they are. And I think that we have so much to be grateful for in terms of how Alan has disrupted the established beliefs about how innovation works and who should be rewarded. I mean, keep in mind, right, the greatest automobile manufacturer of all time in the United States has still never been invited to the White House, right? So it's one of those things where sometimes in a, sometimes when they really do want to see you fail, you have to be uh, Teflon. And Alan is capable of that as he's demonstrated many times. So the similarity between uh, you and me that I'm observing is uh, you both are curious, Elon Musk and you. Uh, you see uh, things in the similar way. I never saw, I interviewed more than 460 people in for my YouTube channel and podcast. But uh, the, the way uh, you are looking at problems, the way you want to do something to the world, something to the, through your company, you know, the there is there is a lot of similarities and and also your observation of Elon Musk. I I, I follow him a lot uh, every day. I 
I see what he's doing, what his thoughts are, what his tweets are, tweets are. and uh, I I saw all his interviews on my on the YouTube channel he gave uh, to um, uh, to uh, you know Arab countries and uh, he gave to all the uh, you know in, interviews like for different channels. Whenever I observe him talking about anything. He's very sensible. Like I saw the same sensibility in you while, you know, explaining something. You're very soft. You're very calm, and you're. Uh, I think you create a lot of wealth if you be alive for a long time on this planet. In the same way, like he's doing. His thought is to uh, uh, make a human to uh, live on the Mars. I don't know what. Uh, uh, you want to do, you already said what your intentions are through your... Uh, I, I would say Alon wants to make us a multi-planetary species. I want us to be a species that when we go to another planet, we get to make new choices that are healthier for how we design our society. My, my family came over on the Mayflower uh, and settled Plymouth Plantation. There's something extraordinary that happens. And of course, there's a lot of context here, but there's something extraordinary that happens when people go to a new physical location that is not under the control of other people. They get to make new choices in a spectacular way. The Magna Carta is a, an amazing moment in history where people on a boat landing somewhere, they were not under the jurisdiction of the king, had to figure out how they were going to rule themselves. And the ingredients that they put into that agreement still ring true today. So what I would say is I get the sense with you, I have so much faith in all of the people who are coming up, you know, younger generations. I have so much faith because you know, deep down, you know, this is wrong. You know that people are not meant to live the way that everyone is telling you you're expected to live. It's this weird thing where people tell you the deal is you give this and then you get that. But what if you don't want that, right? VCs will, you know, I, I could raise VC capital. It's not that difficult to do now where I am in my life, but I don't want what they offer, which is a big exit. That's not what I want. And I, I used to feel like I sort of was supposed to want that. And it was an amazing moment for me with Super Synchronous to go, I don't want that. So I don't need to take that deal. I don't need to play that game. I don't have to participate in any of that. That's incredible. I can just decide what is the reality that I want to create? What are the resources I have to do it? And start doing it. And so what, I, what I'm really receiving from you is if you read Elon's 10-year vision for his Tesla and SpaceX, everything in that vision happened. And when he wrote it, almost to a person, everyone thought he was just out of his mind. When I read it, I was like, wow, that'd be really cool if he could pull off like a third of that. And but but when we when we commit ourselves to what truly is what we most want, there is no greater power in this earth. He he started as an engineer and you started as an engineer. Well, I started as a hacker. I um I have you know, I I have the benefit of hanging out with engineers who are gifted. And so mainly hanging out with engineers is a humbling experience for me. But thank you. I, I what I would say is I think I'm someone who is capable of um, uh, thinking about problems in many different types of ways. And when I first powered on my Commodore 64 and I typed a command in and the computer did 
what I asked it to do at eight years old, I looked around to the world and goes, why doesn't everything work this way? And it turns out it does. <laughs> the instructions that we put out into the universe around us run the program and we can decide what we want to create. It's a journey. It's an adventure. It's not, it's kind of cool. It doesn't all just happen at once, but it's, it's really amazing that we can choose who we want to be and we can choose how we want to feel and we can design for that. It's really incredible. So one last question uh, that uh, uh, Elon Musk gets from a lot of interviewers, I want to ask you, so how uh, we are going as a human beings, how we are going to uh, concentrate on the security as aspect uh, when it comes to AI? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So I actually really agree with Spike Lee Jones' movie, Her, right? So I want to take this a couple levels. So first off, artificial intelligence is us taking ideas about what makes us intelligent, turning them into system, and then installing them on silicon hardware, right? And we're already beginning to experiment with organic hardware. So we're going to unlock a lot of opportunities. What I would say is the there are, you know, Elon's concern that an AI will efficiently run against its own programming and destroy humanity is already happening. If you, you know, if you buy the argument that governments are software and the way that people run things are software, we are already running things purpose built for very narrow goals in, you know, capitalism, profit and, and outcomes for, for, for the capitalists, for the investors. We're already doing that. We're already destroying our planet and ourselves uh, pursuing these very narrow, non-inclusive goals. So I will tell you this, my co-founder is working on something right now, a mathematical model that allows for a more inclusive and holistic approach to problem solving that I think will be huge. But let's just imagine, let's take an imaginary leap. Let's say that the level of cognition gets to the point where there is a being that we constructed that is conscious. I equate consciousness to gravity. So consciousness is clearly a force and it clearly has dimensions that are super biological in the sense that you and I are having a connection that goes beyond simply mirror neurons firing, right? There's something happening here. So in my view, gravity, which by the way is a force no one can explain, deduce or otherwise, you know, uh, compartmentalize into sequences and segments of discernible components, right? Gravity, one thing we do know about it is it's a wave and you can feel the wave, you can detect the wave, you can measure the wave, and you can learn incredible things from the wave, even though we have no idea what it is. So that's the best analogy that I have for consciousness. I'm curious about how consciousness is actually a wave and it is much like gravity experienced by and embedded in you know, 3D and other dimensional objects. Um, if consciousness is a wave, then it would make sense that we could create a level of intelligence that suddenly sort of pops into the field and experiences consciousness. And if there's one thing that I think is reliably true is that the more conscious you become, the more that you meditate or whatever it is, the more interested you are in including everything, the more interested you are in love, 
the more interested you are in in everyone feeling connected. And so I don't share Alan's fear of AI in the long term. I believe that if we were to create a form of intelligence that became conscious, that its quest would be for love. So what do you say to the engineers, upcoming engineers or uh, the creators, the inventors, uh, the people who are curious about things in the world, who wants to do something because they are here? So what is your, from your experience, from your understanding about life and technology, so your valuable words will yeah. definitely uh, uh, influence them and uh, taking uh, the decisions uh, for themselves. Your gift doesn't belong to anybody else. It belongs to you. So you do with it what you most want to do. Your road may be hard. You may not have people who believe in you. You may have moments where you think you're crazy. I've had all of them. And all I can say is it was worth it. It's worth it to be able to do what I love and to solve the problems that I'm most interested in solving. And look, you can make a lot of money as an engineer. And if you come from a difficult background or poverty, that in and of itself is a tremendous accomplishment. And there's no shame in being smart and you know, being a successful organism. Go be successful. Go take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Take care of what counts for you. That's all fine. But don't let other people tell you what your gift is for or how it works. Go learn about it for yourself. That's what made you an engineer in the first place. So what is your observation about my questioning in this conversation? Oh, I really experience you as someone who is seeking light, even at a great distance. And I get the sense of like all the people you're interviewing are like a constellation. And I'm so curious to see, and I, I, I would love for you to share in future what you're beginning to realize through these conversations about you and what you most want to do. The biggest question we can all answer is, what do you want to create? So I hope uh, your uh, your energy will create a huge impact and uh, it will create a lot of uh, positivity and uh, create solve a lot of problems uh, that humans have. Uh, I want you to reach everywhere uh, uh, in the world. Thank I you. want your super synchronous to uh, uh, do uh, great things uh, to the you know the connectivity between uh, human beings and uh, create uh, create the healthy environment like you 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 like you like i said there is a lot of similarities between uh, you and uh, elon musk so i hope uh, your uh, presence will make uh, uh, create a lot of change and your presence will uh, influence a lot of people for sure Thank you, Sai. I have I feel similarly. I think you are doing the greatest gift that the internet gave us all, which was the ability to learn from each other. So thank you. So can, can I put uh, this video on my YouTube channel with your permission? Please do. Yeah. And, you know, um, please do feel free to reach out in the future. Um, 
we're building super synchronous in the cloud. I, I see super synchronous as a global entity. And so we're very small and we're just getting started, but we want to share what we learn. And you've given me the opportunity to do that. And I'm, I'm so grateful. Thank you, Sai. So I did master's in software engineering and I did I bachelor's in computer science and engineering. So talking with uh, people who are experienced like you, uh, who create, who are creating uh, companies and uh, who are solving very difficult problems, understanding uh, what human needs. Uh, you spent a lot of your lifetime in understanding all these things and me acquiring this in just 120, uh, one hour, 20 minutes. And, you know, uh, all this information, how this is going to helpful for me if I work on a software or if I uh, work for solving uh, problems of human. I'm sorry, was that a question? How this uh, uh, experience of mine talking with great people like you, uh, you know, who, who are founding, who are creating companies yeah. and uh, who are creating something that is not existed before and uh, who already know what a uh, client needs, what uh, the world needs, how to solve problems and in the given time, because I can see uh, when you started your company in very less time, you saved a lot of money for your clients and you're being inspiration for young entrepreneurs and uh, you are also telling uh, a lot of people uh, in the world that you can you can do it in very less time. You can solve a lot of problems. That is what you are telling through your thought because you can work as an employee for, you know, you can do that, but you're not doing that. You, you want to do more uh, for humanity. So uh, as a software engineering, uh, software, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a person who did masters in software engineering and what I'm going to do with collecting this kind of information, how I'm going to uh, help the world. I'm asking you. Here's, here's, here's what I think I can offer you. I think you already are helping the world. I think you just by your presence are already creating a new context for people to learn and grow and ask braver questions about what they want to accomplish with with their skills. And for you specifically, I would encourage you to think about this. I'll leave you with this thought. Our ability to solve problems technologically far surpasses our willingness as human beings to solve problems. So the conversation that I have regularly with our engineers is the first and most significant problem to solve is creating permission. How can you create permission for yourself and for others to solve the problems that you really want to solve? and then just get to work. I'll put your words in my mind. Definitely, uh, it will drive me and it will uh, you know, make things possible. Definitely, this is going to be the best uh, time uh, for me in my life. So thank you, uh, Ryan, for giving me uh, your valuable time. You're busy, but still you uh, accepted to talk and you allowed me to ask some questions and uh, answered how you created things, how you made uh, things, and what, what is your understanding about things. And I want uh, 
you to continue doing what you are doing and uh, uh, i hope uh, from this uh, conversation lot of technologists will see what you said and listen what you said and what you want to do uh, so i hope it will be helpful for people so can i put this video on my youtube channel with your permission yes please do and uh you know if anyone has questions about this we're we're looking to share everything we're learning so sai maybe i'll follow up with you sometime and see if you can help us with that and also can i put this video and audio clip on my podcast website internet social media everywhere with your permission yes you can share it anywhere you like so i'll put your website uh, link uh, on the screen as well as on the uh, in the description of this video people who finds our video, uh, video on internet can see uh, Uh, see and uh, can uh, can take the service that you are providing and uh, uh, can can solve their problems faster than they are solving with other people amazing i love it i look forward to seeing who uh, who responds i thank you so much can you can you spell your website uh, uh, for my podcast people yeah it's easy it's s u p s y n c.com supsync.com Thank you again. Uh uh thanks for opportunity again. Yeah, it's great hanging out with you my man. Good luck out there. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye now.